Hello and welcome to All Things Women's Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. I'm an obstetrician-gynecologist. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather, I'm a small business owner, I'm a Catholic, I'm a lot of things. But right now on this show, I'm your host as we discuss really all things women's health and always from an authentically Christian perspective. From childbirth to infertility, from pregnancy loss to menopause, homeschooling to personal trainers, if it involves women and their health, it's on our agenda. And joining me on this episode is a really special guest that I'm certain many, many of you have already become aware of, Jordan Dooley. Jordan is a two-time national best-selling author. She's the mother of two beautiful children. She's a wife. She's a very successful entrepreneur. She's the host of the podcast, She Podcast. She is a real, live, breathing social media influencer, uh, among many other things. You might think that you're a high energy, get a lot of stuff done in the course of a day person. Just wait till you hear more from today's guest. Jordan's going to join us today and share her story of overcoming fertility challenges and really how she structured her life, her motherhood, her business around helping other women do the same thing uh, to become the greatest versions of themselves possible. So get comfortable as we get to know a lot more about this amazing young woman and her journey to build a family and a better life. We'll be right back with all things women's health. Well, we're back with today's guest, Jordan Dooley. Jordan, welcome to All Things Women's Health. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here. Well, thanks for whittling out a little bit of time for me and for our listeners to talk about your exciting story. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, everybody's journey begins somewhere. Uh, where do you? Where would you say your journey begins? Yeah. Um, I So I would say my journey begins with getting married. I got married in 2016, um, right out of college. We were uh-huh. broke and unsure of how we were going to do all that, but we worked it out. Um, and then a few years into our marriage, we decided to start trying to have a family. And mm. I thought, you know, I'm young, I'm healthy. This will just happen in a blink. And it didn't really work out that way. So I was um, a little surprised. And I think a lot of people are, you know, when when they have a plan, you know, I think the idea yeah. of family planning can sometimes be a little deceptive because yes, we can, we can you know, uh, make plans all we want, but the Lord really guides our steps. And sometimes it doesn't look like the, the journey we anticipate. So um, yeah, it started with getting married in 2016 and then in 2019, trying to build a family and running into multiple hurdles. And I'm happy to share about that if you'd like. Yeah. So do you remember, you know, first encountering those hurdles? Because I think if when people start looking at the program notes about you, Mm -hmm. they're probably going to have an impression that you have everything lined up just perfectly and, you know, everything falls into place perfectly. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, would you call yourself uh, a planner, a sort of a, a type A person before this journey began? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I think the Lord maybe allowed me to walk through this journey to teach me that you lose so much control in motherhood. I mean, maybe that wasn't the only reason, but I always wonder, like, you know, you ask the question, why? And it, I will say nothing teaches you how little you have control, like parenting a child or trying to become a parent. And uh, yes. Um, so yes, absolutely. I was a type A. And I think that's still naturally who mm. I am, but I've had to learn where to let go and where to release. And how to do that consistently. And it's, it's been a growing experience. Sure. At least. <laughs> I sometimes hear women say, uh, actually very commonly, well, we're not, we're not trying to be pregnant, but we're not not trying yeah. to. Yeah. And I always think, you know, that's fear. You're, you're afraid to say we're trying mm-hmm. because I think a lot of people are afraid to say that you, mm-hmm. you can't fail if you don't try. Yeah. Um, but what was it like when you said, okay, now it's go and we should be pregnant in the next few minutes? What was that like? Yeah. So we had the similar mindset where I was like, let's just see what happens, you know? Um, and I was actually surprised to get a positive test within the first, the first couple months of even, you yeah. know, trying. And so I was like, oh, well, that was easy. Cool. We don't struggle with fertility issues. And um, it was perfect timing. It was right around Christmas time. I thought this is the perfect end to a perfect year. We had both uh, had great years in our careers. We had bought our first home. Like we were just yeah. in that really sweet spot of life, you know? And um, I was pregnant told our families at Christmas time, we actually flew to visit Matt's family who lives on the other side of the country in Arizona. And within a couple hours of getting there, I started bleeding. And I was like, oh, oh this is not supposed to happen to me. Like this wow. isn't good. You know, I kind of started to be a little nervous. And so that pregnancy ended up, um, it was kind of weird. It was like 
is it okay? Is it not? I had a couple different ultrasounds and then it ended up not being okay. Um, so I lost that pregnancy. The mm. first, I found that, I found that out like probably around eight or nine weeks, eight weeks probably. Um, and I think I was, you know, you know, these things are common. You hear about them all the time. And I think because they're common, you assume that it's easy or it's not mm. hard until it happens to you. And you feel like you're just kind of crumbling. Like it was just kind of a devastating feeling that I can't put words to. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, really not how I expected that pregnancy to end. I had already kind of started to plan my next fiscal year and, and business year around, okay, this is when I'll take my maternity leave and this is when I'll do this, that, and the other thing. And sure. all of a sudden I had to start over. I was like, okay, we almost had a kid, but then we didn't. And now what? So wow. that was such a um, jarring experience to say the least. And then um, I, I consulted with my doctor and my physician and they said, you know, this, this is normal. It's probably a fluke. Yeah. Most miscarriages are chromosomal, like try again. And I said, okay, I guess. I didn't love that though, because, you know, I think whenever something so, like when you have loss occur within your body and you're still alive, it's a really strange, complex thing to navigate. And there's something mm. to you that wants to understand why, even if it's just one, right? Like I say just as if that's like no big deal, but it is. Yeah. And so I, I how, how do you, you, do you remember? How you felt about the way, especially healthcare professionals, were explaining and and talking to you about the loss? What was what was that experience like? Yeah, I will say I think the uh, the OBGYN I was working with was compassionate, but I also felt like it was kind of written off as like this happens, you're yeah. young, it'll be fine. So it yeah. wasn't like they were intentionally dismissive, but I think. I desired more answers. So I had to go find, like I went and worked with a separate functional medicine doctor um, and kind of had to dig on my own. And I didn't do a ton. I just did a little bit of like hormone testing to kind of get an idea of that was part of it. But yeah, I felt like, I felt like I had empathy and sympathy, but I also didn't feel like there was a whole lot of proactive steps, if that makes sense. I talk with a lot of people who will describe in one way or another, this sort of um, conflict. Mm-hmm. So kind of what you're saying, the, the profession, the healthcare profession, and, and many well-intended friends, family even will say, like you mentioned, you're young, mm-hmm. you're healthy, mm-hmm. this happens. In a way, they're saying it's no big deal mm-hmm. without saying that. Yeah. And then at the same time, your heart and your body is saying, I just lost a child. Mm-hmm. And that, that conflict creates so much mm-hmm. pain yeah. uh, in an already painful setting. Do yeah. you remember grappling with those feelings. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I even had that question of, does this life, I mean, I knew the life counted, but like, do I count yeah. mom? Does yeah. this, do people recognize this as my child? Because we never saw a face and never right. like, put a name to it. And when you have a miscarriage, it's just one of those things that's, it feels kind of elusive to people who didn't, even my husband, like he couldn't feel it on the same level I did because I had, I felt like instantly like a mother the second I knew that that baby existed. And yeah. Um, to have that suddenly ripped away before you even get a chance to exercise that motherhood just feels like this really strange um, like dance of like acceptance and grief and anger and then confusion because people are saying, it'll work out, try again, as yeah. if it's like a replaceable being. And when you truly believe that every life is unique in an individual soul, it is hard to just, I mean, yeah, yeah. we'll try again. Okay. But also that doesn't replace what we've lost here, right? Like you don't say that yeah. you've lost a child that you could see physically. So yeah, I always think if if you were to tell friends, you know, my, my sister died, mm-hmm. and would the friend say, oh, well, at least you have other sisters, it'll be fine. Right. Yeah. No. And they would never say that, and they don't mean that, mm-hmm. but yet, like you say, that's what often is said. Yeah. I always, you know, whenever I get a chance to talk to people about it, I, I suggest either don't say anything mm-hmm. or, or say, I'm sorry for your loss, mm-hmm. um, but validate that it, in fact, was a loss. They lost a child. Right. And that's why they're grieving because they know they lost a child. Yeah. And you kind of feel like in this in this kind of loss, you feel like you lose a future. I, I think sometimes, you know, yeah. when you lose um, a parent or a grandparent, it feels like you lose the memories, the past, the life you experience. Ah. When you lose a baby in pregnancy or an infant, it's like you're losing the future as to what we expect. Oh, uh, yeah, that's that's well said. Yeah. That's really so you had this loss. Um, you sort of got through that. You started doing some asking of questions. Uh, where does the story go next? Yeah. So then, um, a couple months later, I ended up getting pregnant again and I thought, oh, this is the redemption story (laughs) circle. And I was actually due 
one year to almost the day that I found out I was pregnant the first time. Oh my! I was like, oh, full circle. Like this is God's, you know, opportunity to flex his big muscle. This is amazing. <laughs> and what was really interesting about that and honestly really difficult about that was I went in pretty early for my first ultrasound because at that point my OB knew I needed a little bit of reassurance. And so yeah. I went in at like six and a half weeks. Everything looked perfect. Went in again at eight and a half. Everything was perfect. 10 and a half or 11, everything looked perfect. So I was watching this progress. You know, you see a little chicken nugget turn into like a gummy bear and then turn into like something with little arms and legs and a little profile. And I was like, oh my gosh, like you just fall in love and you see like all this positive progress. And then right around like 13 or 14 weeks, I went in for just one more like kind of first trimester into second trimester scan. I had had no signs anything was wrong and mm. they just were going to do a Doppler and they couldn't find it. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So my husband put his hand on my, on my womb and he just started praying child mm. up. Like if you're, you know, if you're asleep, wake up and they brought in an ultrasound machine and there was no heartbeat and we were just absolutely crushed and so shocked. I mean, it was so out of left field and it was the worst timing too, because my mom, my grandma and my cousin and my aunt were all on their way from my hometown, which is a couple hours away to plan my baby shower at the local restaurant we were going to have it at. And I had to tell them like, don't come. Like it was just so jarring. And I think because I had been told this won't, this is just a fluke. And also because I had watched this progress happen over the course of the whole first trimester, that's the only downside to getting to see that early, you know? Um, Mm. And I don't want to call it a downside. I think it was a gift to get to connect, but at the same time, it made it so much like even more difficult to process. So anyway, um, I ended up having to have a DNC for that one because my body was like not in any way telling me that something was wrong and it wasn't, you know, taking care of it on its own. And so um, I had a DNC partly, I think also, because I was like, I just wanted this nightmare to be over with at that point. Um, And so did that. That was a little bit of a traumatic situation too, like, you know, just being in recovery and just the whole process. I was like, oh, I wasn't mentally prepared. They handed me a form to like sign what I wanted to do with the remains, like stuff they don't prepare you for. And I was like, I don't know how to process or sign this, you know, just really difficult and things that I just was not expecting, honestly, didn't know how to mentally handle. and this was all during COVID year, 2022. I was back in the, you know, OR by myself, back in the recovery by myself. And they, I, I couldn't sign that form. I didn't even know what to do. And they're like, do you want your husband to be able to come back here? I was like, yeah, that would probably help. I'm kind of alone right now, you know? So it was just, it just added a lot of layers. But anyway, so that ended up, you know, I had that procedure. I was told, you know, within a week or so you'll be recovered. Well, my situation, I was like in the 1% of people who have complications from DMPs. So I had retained placenta. I had to go through the whole, like, I basically had to go through the miscarriage process two weeks after the DNC one, once wow. I thought things were fine, you know, so it's just like, wow. like kind of like, like, you know, twisting the knife a little bit or salt in the wound for lack of a better way of saying it. And so I had a pretty tough recovery um, with that. And I was pretty shaken up. It had been a lot within a very short period of time, plus a, yeah. you know, surgery and complications. And so I told my husband, I was like, I need a break. And I feel like I need to figure out what's going on. Cause obviously it wasn't a fluke if it's happening again. Um, yeah. And I kind of need to give myself, my body, my mind, my heart a minute. So that was kind of where we ended up in 2020 is we're going to take a break. So as you think back, I mean, I hate to ask you to think about something that was so unpleasant, but as you think back to that that DNC experience, um, what could have been done to make that better? How could could we help listeners be better consumers, you -hmm. you might say, Mm -hmm. of healthcare if they find themselves in that position. I know often yeah. I'm talking to women, unfortunately we've had to talk about something really painful mm-hmm. and then we have to talk about something really practical. Yeah. Do you want to have a DNC? Do you want to try to not have a DNC? Mm-hmm. The pros, the cons, the risks, the benefits, it's very almost transactional you might yeah. say. Yeah. You and I, I like the way you said you weren't even able to process it yet, mm-hmm. let alone make an intelligent decision. But yeah. you know, if, if you look back to that space again, mm-hmm. what would you teach people in, in healthcare to do better at that? Yeah. Um, I think on the, you know, when you're talking about the practicals and you're having this conversation with a woman about what are we deciding to do here? Um, 
I think it would have been helpful if I had known um, prior to the procedure, like these are some questions you're going to be asked, or this is this form, the form oh. that you might be asked to sign so that you you can talk to your husband about what do we want to do with the remains or what do we want to do with X, Y, and Z? Do we want to do fetal testing? Like, what does that look like? And I didn't know that if you do fetal testing, you don't really get to hold on to any of the remains. Like it was just a lot of pieces that I think if I, from the emotional side of it, had I been a little bit more prepared for, mm. this is what you're going to be asked and what to expect to make a decision on. So have a day or two to talk about it beforehand. Um, uh, I think that just would have made that experience a little less jarring. Um, mm. And then I had a unique situation. I doubt this happens all the time, but I woke up next to a screaming like infant toddler who was also probably had some sort of procedure done. So it felt oh, like gosh. I just had this ripped from my body and then this child is waking me up screaming. And so I think just even being mindful of what wow. procedure did this woman just have done? Maybe we don't put her right next to a child, right? Like, or something like that. Yeah. Um, I doubt that happens all the time. It was probably just a human error, but that is just another thing from, an, from a healthcare side and awareness of yeah. where are we, you know, how are we, who are we treating and what are their experiences? Um, and then I would say on the recovery side, I was not told what could possibly, I was told like, you know, there's a small risk of bleeding, but you should be good. Like you'll, you'll you know, expect to be done. They kind of just made it sound like you're not going to be in the 1%. Right. And I think if I'd have been a little bit more prepared about what could happen, it would have been a little less freaky. So I'd have known yeah. that my doctor told me this is what to watch for. So they tell you watch for heavy bleeding, things like that. But what they didn't tell me is that you could produce milk even at that stage. Um, that happened. Uh. I was pretty surprised. Um, they didn't tell me. Retain placenta is X, Y, you know, this is what it is like. This is what it might be. Call this number if this happens. Like, uh, um, so I think just having a little bit more like, oh, if I suddenly start hemorrhaging, it could be retained placenta. That's mm -hmm. what, you know, because all of a sudden I just thought, is my bot like, is my womb broken? Did they slice it open? Like I had all, you immediately go to the worst place, right? So anyway, I think just knowing like, hey, this probably won't happen, but it is possible. So just mm -hmm. being a little bit more detailed, I guess. Like I didn't know that you could lactate that after a 13 or 14 week loss. And I'm sure not, not everyone does, but the fact that it's possible is pretty important yeah. to talk about, you know? So little, those things were super triggering and just made the healing process from an emotional standpoint 10 times harder. Cause I felt like every time I tried to take a step forward, my body was sending me back and my healthcare provider hadn't really prepared me for that, you know? Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a miserable experience. Um, <laughs> it's not fun. That's why I was like, we're gonna we're gonna stop for a sec. Pause. Yeah. Pause seemed like a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So so you paused for a while and tried to heal. Yeah. Um, how did that go for you? Yeah. I mean, I started seeing a therapist. Um, started seeing a therapist who specializes in perinatal loss and for always a good call. That was very helpful, and it really helped my husband and I because we grieved a little bit differently. Obviously, it yeah. hit me in different ways, but he was affected in ways that I didn't quite understand, and so um, it really helped us in, from a marriage standpoint and from just an individual grief counseling standpoint. And so we started doing that. Kind of spent the rest of 2020 focused on that. Mm. At the same time, I did a lot of digging. I started. I started working with. Napro. I started working with functional doctors, started just digging and doing more testing. Some of it I had to pay for out of pocket because some insurance won't cover until you have three losses. But I just was like, sure. I don't care. I want answers, you know? Yeah. Um, so we kind of tried to get as many answers as we could. And we did find a couple of things. I found a little bit with my thyroid. We found MTHFR mutation. Like there were definitely some clues um, that kind of gave us an idea of what might work in the next pregnancy. So we took it that time off. And then in 2021, shortly into 2021, we decided, okay, I think we have a good plan. I think we've gotten some answers. I feel like I've had a minute to breathe. Let's see what happens and try again. Hmm. And I'd always gotten pregnant within two or three months, if not less than that. And so because we had always gotten pregnant quickly, I expected that to be the case. And yeah. month after month after month after month went by and I just stopped getting pregnant. Wow. And I was like, what is happening? Like, it's just, it felt like it was like, first you have recurrent miscarriage. Now you're not getting pregnant. Like, it's like so confusing when you experience both, you know, I like, I was like, God, I had a plan of what we were going to do. And now it's now I can't even do that, you know? So anyway, time went on and there was something in the back of my mind that was telling me I had a, I got pregnant easily, had a surgery with a really odd, complicated recovery. Mm -hmm. And now I'm not getting pregnant. So is there scar tissue in there? Is yeah. there something going on that's inhibiting the ability to conceive now? Mm -hmm. And so I went and saw a local fertility doctor first and they did an HSG, which is the, um, you could probably explain what that the, the dye test to see yeah. if your tubes are open. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. They did that. And everything looked okay from that standpoint. We were also looking to see if there's any sign of scar tissue from that. Um, and they said, everything looks great. They did a 3d ultrasound. Like they just did a variety of different things to check for that. All of that said, that didn't really yield a whole lot of answers. And so we were kind of in some ways back to square one because I'm like, now do I need to do fertility testing? So I had my husband tested. I mean, we were literally just going through the gamut, genetic testing, everything. Um, 
And, and at that point I felt like I was in probably an even more optimal place health wise than I was a year and a half prior when we first started trying or two years yeah. prior when we first started trying, because I had made all sorts of lifestyle changes. I had done so, so many things to kind of optimize fertility. And then suddenly I wasn't even fertile. It was the weirdest thing. So anyway, at one point I, when we, when we didn't find scar tissue, I was like, okay, but I still feel like there's something uterine wise, you know, yeah. like there's something there. And I think that's when I got connected with you guys, fertility and midwifery care. Um, and I was also working with a local doctor here and we did a hysteroscopy to see, right. you know, what's going on and also uh, to check the tubes and all that. And I had what looked kind of like inflammation. I don't know that the biopsy came back one way or another, but I had what looked like inflammation. And so we talked about, let's maybe treat that with an antibiotic. And my local doctor here, he saw the images too. And he was like, well, since you're local and I'm going to be, you know, kind of working one-on-one -on -one with you as, you know, monitoring your next pregnancy, I'm happy to try an antibiotic while you wait on, you know, maybe because we were also going to schedule an endometriosis surgery. That was the next yeah. thing because I had a little bit of endometriosis and I thought it's one or the other or both of these factors is what's going on. So anyway, we did an antibiotic and I got pregnant immediately after oh, wow. 15 or 16 months. So I thought, oh my gosh. And I found out Mother's Day weekend. So I thought this is a redemption <laughs> story, right? Like this is surely it. Like we've waited almost, it had been almost, let's see, it had been about 15 or 16 months of trying after two miscarriages prior to that. And I was like, okay, this is just too perfect. And then I had a lot of close friends and family members who were pregnant and do at the same time. I mean, it was just like everything aligned, the stars aligned. And I oddly enough ended up losing that baby as well. And wow. it was very bizarre because it's very similar to my first miscarriage. Like just the circumstances, the timing, everything was very similar. And I just remember being like, and now I'm out. Like I'm out of ideas. Like I was just the only thing that I had in the back of my mind, it was something uh, someone I, another gal I connected with had told me about. And my local doctor here had mentioned, um, cause you guys are a couple hours away from where I'm at. So I was kind of, util I had like a whole team of different people. <laughs> I, was, I will literally talk to anybody. I was so desperate. That point. But um, at that point I, I spoke with a local doctor here and they also recommended possibly seeing a reproductive immunologist, which I had briefly heard of, but it's not a very common thing. Right. But I said, well, let's do fetal testing first, because if this was just a genetic fluke, because that third pregnancy, I was treating my thyroid. I was on the blood thinners. I was doing a lot of the things, progesterone yeah. support that usually solve problems when you have miscarriages. Right. So when that still didn't work, I said, let's test the genetics first. Well, genetically, everything came back beautiful and normal. And so that for me told me, okay, there's something going on in my system and in my body. Yeah. Um, so I met with the reproductive immunologist. They did all this testing and I had all these markers of immune dysfunction going on that was happening during pregnancy. So that kind of between that and knowing I had a little bit of endo in there too, I was like, there's probably some inflammation, but I also was having like an autoimmune response to pregnancy. It was the wildest thing, but I had never caught it because the way that they described it to me was if you think of your immune system on a scale of one to 10, one being perfect, normal immune function, no issues in pregnancy or outside of pregnancy, and then 10 being like full blown lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, yeah. I was like a four or five. So my body was trending toward autoimmune, but it hadn't gotten to the point where I had a full diagnosis. But when I had a trigger in my body, like pregnancy, it was causing my natural killer cells and my cytokines and all of my immune, you know, responders to flare and see that foreign body, there, that foreign body, which was like half of my husband's DNA, see, you know, oh, this is foreign attack, it, which is the, which is the body's natural response to something that's new and something right. not your own DNA. That's why when you have a kidney transplant, right, they like try to test your immune system. So anyway, my body was reacting as if I had an organ transplant as my body was trying to build a placenta. And so that was like a, a major thing that I had never found before. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, let's try that. So that was kind of where I feel like the page started to turn a little bit. But, you know, to pause there for a second, I mean, if you think about it, I'm sure listeners are, are asking themselves. So, you know, you, you had miscarriages, you learned that you had some inflammation, mm -hmm. you learned that you had a couple of genetic mutations, mm -hmm. you learned that you had endometriosis. Mm -hmm. Now you've learned that your autoimmune system is not working properly. Mm -hmm. You had to feel like I'm broken and I'm not supposed to be pregnant. Totally. I was like, I suck at being pregnant. Like, it's like, I just, there's no, I mean, it was one of those things where I was like, kind of at the point where I was like, I'm just going to accept this isn't going to work. Yeah. 
And that's okay. Like maybe I just, and, and it, it was hard to get to that point, but I was like, I'm just going to accept like, sure, I'll try this immune thing. And if that doesn't, my, to me, surgery was like my last ditch ever. And you knew that we had conversations about it. But I was like, I will do that if the immune thing doesn't work. Like I had yeah. a kind of a, a plan, right? Like you asked me in the beginning, am I a planner? Um, and so I kind of had like, I'll do these things, but like, there's just so many risk factors. It's just probably not going to yeah. work. It's kind of what I had gotten to. Yeah. Yeah, I hear couples a lot of times describe that feeling of, well, this was this was that answer, this was that email from God that we thought we wanted, mm -hmm. and the answer is no. Mm -hmm. And so we'll move on, we'll adopt, we'll raise puppies, we'll yeah, you know, we'll do something else because we're not called to biologic pregnancy. And then mm -hmm. of course, sometimes they are, and we just have to overcome mm -hmm. all of those factors that you've listed. Yeah. But the level of frustration and the sense of defeat and brokenness yeah. can be incredibly overwhelming. Well, and especially as a woman, it feels like the one thing you're born to be able to do, you're not right. able to do. It's such a like, you feel like you've been robbed, you know? Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. So how did you, how did you get through that? What, what happened? Um, well, I was pretty angry for a while, to be honest, especially after that third loss, because I just felt okay. like it was just one like dead end after dead end after dead end. Every time I thought we have an answer, we have a plan, we have this. And I, I think I was I was angry. Now, I'll back up a little bit just so that this story makes sense chronologically. During our like journey, I really felt convicted because when Matt and I were first engaged, we had always talked about adoption regardless of our biological situation. We always said that's something that we want to do as a family, whether we have three biological kids or none or one or five, whatever. Sure. So I told him, I said, I wonder if the Lord's asking us to just like open our hands and open both the doors and tr treat both kind of as plan A versus like, you know, one before the other. And I said, I don't, I don't foresee that anything would happen at the same time anyway, but let's just like pray about that. So we started praying about it. And at the same time, we had been doing some um, short-term foster care is basically what I would call it, like respite care. It's called safe families. So we had had many children in our home that we were caring for. And there was one sibling set in, in particular that we were actually asked to adopt at one point by the mother. So wow. that kind of forced us to have the conversation of like, would we do this right now? Would we open ourselves to this right now? And without like a hesitation, my husband, I was personally always ready, but my husband was like, not sure when he'd be ready. And without hesitation after that experience, he was like, yeah, I would. <laughs> and this was about halfway through. Our this was before the third loss. This was before a lot of other, of the other things. It was just kind of intermixed through the whole thing. We just kind of were like, we're trying to build our family. God's telling us to open yeah. both doors. Let's do that. So we just did a home study. We kind of got the ball rolling. So in the same, t at the same time, that whole thing was going on and, um, that was interesting to navigate simultaneously with like grief and loss, but also like hope and anticipation, if that makes sense. Um, so that said, when I, when I had the third loss, we had recently just completed our home study. We were like approved mm. to adopt. And it just felt like this big, like unknown, like, like standing in front of the Grand Canyon of like, I keep losing babies. I'm approved to do this, but I, I want to, I, I don't even know how to like make sense of it all. It just seemed like so much was happening at once that I thought, was this even a good idea to pursue both at the same time? So anyway, um, but yeah, so it was, I remember it like it was yesterday. And I just remember feeling not only overwhelmed and kind of like broken and confused and defeated, yeah. but also like, um, like I had literally gotten to the point where I was like, I think I've just come to peace with it took me a little bit. It wasn't like the day after the miscarriage, but several months later, I kind of got to this point where I was like, maybe like the children I care for and raise on earth aren't ones that come from my body. And maybe that's the Lord's call in my life. And I have to, I'm just going to keep my hands as open to that as possible. Like I, I literally yeah. got to that point because I was like, okay, you know, like, and, yeah. and I literally remember texting a friend and I was like, is it the worst thing in the world? Like, yes, it's been really painful, but like, I'm trying to make peace with the fact that like, I have three children in eternity that I will spend in eternity, like eternity with, I just won't get to raise on earth. Mm. So is it the worst thing in the world that the children I parent on earth may or may not be biological, but I still have my babies in heaven that I get to look forward to meeting one day? Like, no, it's not easy and it's not good. It still comes with a lot of bad and grief, but yeah. is that the worst thing? And could I come to terms with that? Like I had conversations in my text messages yeah. with my mom and friends, and that was like a really interesting place to come to, to say the least. <laughs> And I, I think it's probably fair to say, it, listen, if listeners haven't been on the adoption trail, you might say, mm. it's hard to appreciate how exhausting that trail is. Yeah. I mean, you know, you said several times, we just finished our home study, but mm. um, it, it's hard to explain how draining that process is. Yeah. It, it's not only draining, I would say a fair amount of degrading. Mm -hmm. um, you're having to justify your 
yourself to people, to strangers. Mm-hmm. You literally have people come in and look at your house. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it, it can be a tough, tough It felt process. like a very vulnerable season on yeah. every front because not only was I having multiple people examining my body and trying to figure out what's going on and tell me this is wrong with you and this is wrong with you, but then also having every area of my life from finances to my home to how we how yeah. we do things like my, our church, like literally everything felt like it was being dissected and picked apart. And yeah, yeah I just felt like very exposed. That's the best way I could put it. Do you, do you remember the the conversations and the feelings uh, between you and your husband? Because when I say that, I'm thinking a lot of couples will describe this, this can be a devastating time. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've certainly in my career, I've seen good relationships really fracture yeah. uh, over the stress of this. Yeah. What was that like for you and your husband? Yeah, we had areas and certain things like learning how, to, how the other grieves. Like one big challenge we ran into is my husband is very much a fixer, an action taker. And when, when we kept losing baby after baby and there was nothing he could do to fix it. Like I remember fix that. Yeah. after one of our losses, I was on the couch just weeping and he was out in the garage like fixing something. I'm like, how are you working right? You know, um, There was a lot of miscommunication and misunderstanding of like understanding understanding how the other processes to me it felt like he didn't care like he was just shutting right. and to him he felt like I wasn't seeking to understand him and so there mm. were some experiences like that and that's where the grief counselor helped us really understand some of those things um so in many ways I feel like it it really stretched us mm-hmm. at the same time looking back I think it also strengthened us like Matt mm. says faith is like a muscle it has to be broken down to be built back up. And I think that's also true of relationships and marriage. Sometimes you have to go through the really hard stuff to then see what you're you know, made of. And I feel like um, in that process, in some ways we were feeling strong and in other ways we felt really weak, but the suffering like was so refining for our relationship because it helped us focus on what are, what do we actually care about? You know, we did, we made a lot of big life changes to focus on the priority, which was our family. You know, we thought we right. can travel internationally when we're older. We can, we had an old house that we were fixing up and kind of trying to turn into our dream home. And we were like, this is not the season to be doing that. Like there was just things we needed to like simplify and focus yeah. on into our marriage and our family and our home. And, um, so it was interesting the way we had to make some of those hard decisions together, but it was also really good for us too. Wow. You know, it's, I often use the phrase, uh, kill the bear, but, you know, men for the most part in our various variations, we're not all the same, but we're sort of designed to kill the bear. If there's a threat, we're supposed to go fix that threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like the way you said your husband is a fixer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so killing the bear would be fixing things. Mm-hmm. But the trouble is with infertility and recurrent loss, that bear's too big, and you can't even see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think often that leads men to feeling somewhat helpless, mm-hmm. and that will lead us to sort of appear detached. Yeah. Uh, and I, I like the way that you described it. And mm-hmm. it, it's a misinterpretation, but yet it, I think it's a very natural mm-hmm. response. And unless you have somebody help you break into that mm-hmm. cycle and, and communicate about it, mm-hmm. I think that's where things can begin to break down. Yeah. Uh, but so great that you guys learned Mm-hmm. about how the other person grieves, as you said. Yeah, yeah, it was really eye-opening. So you've had your third loss. This has been a tough season. You're beginning to kind of move down the fostering and adoption path, mm-hmm. uh, and things are getting really interesting. Yeah, yeah, so that was the beginning of the summer of 2022 when we had our third loss. We also had, you know, kind of completed a large part of the adoption process. And so at that point, I was I had seen the reproductive or I was about to see the reproductive immunologist and we also started seeing some adoption cases that we could say, yes, please, you know, present us to or no. And we hadn't seen a whole lot, but it was about the middle of the summer, right around the time I had finished some testing and we got a call that we had matched. We had been chosen um, for for my birth mother. And it was I literally thought it was a joke. I was like, am I being punked? Like, I'm so confused. Like, because everyone tells you it's going to take so long. Like, and it, and it had been a long process on the front end. Yeah. So I was expecting like multiple months or years, you know, that's why I was like, let's just open the door and start the process because ideally this will take three or four years, you know? And when all of a sudden we, and we chose domestic adoption for our, for our first adoption experience. So that was why we had been chosen by a birth mother. And, um, it was like the most happy thing in the world and also the most heartbreaking because adoption is always, you know, there's beauty and brutal. It's both beautiful and brutal in many ways. And hmm. I just remember being like, oh my gosh. But what was so wild was when we got the call, it was a few months into that process, we 
there was a couple connection points, one being that there was like a shared due month. So when I would have done been due with that for that third baby is when our adopted son was born. Uh, so like there was just like these little silver linings, but of course I was kind of cynical at that point. So I was like, okay, like that's cool, but surely this won't actually happen. You know, and there was just a lot of things where I was just so guarded and I was just so, you know, protected. And um, anyway, so flash forward, um, it did happen and it was the most glorious, beautiful thing in so many ways. We had such a beautiful relationship with his birth parents. Um, we got to be there for his birth. Like we were just so honored through the whole process and humbled and heartbroken. Like it's, they say adoption is like a birthday, a funeral and a wedding all at once. And it really is. Wow. So that's like a whole other conversation, but it did happen. Um, and I had Short, shortly around like right around that time I had also found out I was expecting but you know of course with my history I was like I'm just gonna hold this really loosely and I had um, been given a protocol from the immunology uh, doctor and so I was like well I'll try it but we've tried protocols before and it didn't work so I was pretty pretty like negative and pretty much expecting it to be the same as before yeah and so of course that's the pregnancy that ended up working out so now I have two boys um, <laughs> who are less than six months apart and <laughs> <laughs> it has been the most exciting, amazing, chaotic, beautiful thing in the world. But it's just one of those moments where I'm like, you know, I, I guess the moral of the story is, and I always come back, there's two moral of the stories I would say. The first is, you know, I was pregnant the second time and I thought, surely this is the redemption story. Pregnant the third time, surely this is the redemption story. Yeah. We like to write our own redemption stories. And then they kept falling apart. The ones I wrote, the one I thought, this is the redemption. This is going to be the, the full circle moment. And I just kept thinking like, God, like you, this is your moment to show off. And then you just keep like, not what what's going on. And then he gave me a double portion when I least expected it. Like his redemption stories are always so much better, you know, um, even though it's also really challenging to have two that small. Um, and so that was kind of the first thing is like, God always writes better redemption stories than we write. And the second thing was, I feel like through this process, one of the biggest lessons he taught me was, you know, in the beginning when I was going through loss after loss and I was really angry at God, I was like, God, I don't, I don't deserve this. I've done nothing but try to honor you, to publicly declare your name, to lead women to you. Like, I'm so confused why I'm like being punished, right? So I had this almost like a little bit of a prideful mindset of like, there are people out there who don't honor you at all and they're being blessed with children. I'm so confused. I don't deserve right. this. And then when, and I, I, you know, if they say suffering is like a test of your faith. And there's so many times I'm like, I don't feel like I passed. Like, I feel like I was pretty mad. You know, I didn't handle that as well as like, I would have liked to say I did. And, um, and then he blesses me with this double portion when I least expect it and least deserve it. And at this, and it was interesting because now on the back end, I'm like, I didn't deserve this, but from a place of humility and not a place of pride. And I think uh, the, the ultimate lesson there is like, God taught me, I don't give according to what you deserve. I give according to my grace. And <laughs> you know, we don't deserve children, whether they come by adoption or biological or anything like he just gives by grace. And I think that's the mindset that I had to like get to through mm. the suffering, through the surrender, you know, over and over and over finally realizing like, Oh my gosh, I don't feel like I really did a good job of, of passing this test, you know, but yet you've blessed me in ways I could never have imagined or even asked for. I'm trying to make sense of that now, you know, when I was first trying to make sense of the suffering. So anyway, that was, yeah, yeah just a really eye opening and humbling uh, lessons I feel like that came out of a really difficult but also beautiful story. Yeah, beautiful indeed. You know, in that journey, if you had to say, uh, almost in an academic way, what was the low point? Where where was that with your third loss? Yeah, I would say there were like a thousand low points, but I would say the part, the point where I was really um, over it, like the point. The lowest point for me emotionally and mentally, like to the point where my husband was like, I don't think you're okay. Like we need to see a therapist was shortly after my second loss because the recovery was so tough on top yeah. of the, you know, we carried further. I was turning the corner into the second trimester. We started to be like, good, we're good. You know, um, yeah. so I think the jarring element of that and the difficult surgery recovery and all of that really put me in a tough place emotionally and mentally for a while because yeah. it made sense. I think then I got, I went numb. So that was like deepest pain. And then after the third one, I went numb. I was like, all right, it's not happening. Like, I just kind of yeah. was like, we're done. Like, I mean, I'll, I'll make sure I turn over every stone so I can look back when I'm 50 and say I did everything I could. Um, mm. But I don't expect it anymore. Like, I don't even, you know, so that was an interesting, there was like two major low points. One was from deep, deep pain and just distress. And then the next one was more from like a place of just numbness. Wow. You know, I, I know you to be a woman of strong faith. Um, as you think back to those those low, dark points, mm -hmm. do you feel like your faith was tested? Do you feel like you doubted what you thought you believed? Mm -hmm. 
what what did that look like then? Well, all of the above. I mean, one big question <laughs> I, I asked was, okay, so if we don't blame God for our losses that happen, right? It's not like I'm making it his fault, but then why do we credit him when there's life? Or you could answer that, you could flip that the other way. If we credit him when there's life and joy and abundance, why don't we blame him when things are hard? Ah. Um, that was a question I wrestled with quite a bit and something that I talked with some mentors about and they said, well, God doesn't make loss happen. He allows it to happen. The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I said, okay, cool. But I don't, I don't have a relationship with the enemy, so I don't expect him to like watch out for me. I don't expect him to protect me, right? I have a relationship <laughs> with God. So I have this hope and this prayer and this ex expectation kind of that he will protect me. Mm. And I think we assume protection means we never go through bad things. And that was a big part of my wrestling was like, okay, I know that you go through hard things as a Christian, but this just seems like almost cruel, you know, like it's just and yeah. anyone who's been through kind of when they say when it rains, it pours, it's just hardship after hardship after hardship or heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. And it just seems like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. You just start to be like, where is God? Um, yeah. And I, I, it's hard not to like want to blame or because you want to point the finger at something. You want something yeah. that makes sense, right? And you're just feeling like he's withholding. And um, so, yeah, that was like a big question. I definitely feel like there was times where I really severely doubted. I felt like there was times I was so angry that I, I mean, I stopped going to church for a couple months because I was just like, I yeah. don't even think I can be there. And then we went back because um, my husband was like, we need to go back to church. <laughs> and the first thing I saw was like a nine month pregnant woman. And I ran out. I was like, really? Like, I literally looked up and gone, are you mocking me? Like, I'm so mad. Like, I was just, you know, and, and it's, it was, but it, you know, in some ways, I think going through that time of like really having to relearn the character of God in the context of suffering that not, it's not this like theoretical suffering. Cause we can all theologically talk about the benefits of suffering and understanding God. But when you're in it and you're in the Valley, like it just takes a whole new level. Right. And it's like when it personally affects you. And so yeah. I think going through that refining process and really having to wrestle and ask hard questions and doubt and push away. And I literally at one point, was like, God, you're going to have to meet me where I am. Cause like, I don't have the energy to like, I, f I don't even feel like I can pursue right now. I'm just so like numb. Um, and he did. And he, you know, he, he brought encouragement. He brought people around me. Like there was just so many ways that he did meet me in that, even though I couldn't see him. Hmm. Um, and I think that made my faith more real. I think it made yeah. it like more personal. It wasn't just like a series of doing things or checking the box or going to church or, you know, whatever the things that we do as believers are. I think yeah. it becomes so mechanical and so like so much of a list of things to checkbox. And while those disciplines can be good for an active and alive faith, I think simultaneously wrestling with God and suffering and walking through the valley and, and feeling like you're doubting a lot of what you thought you knew actually allows the the, the relationship growth. to go deeper. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I think I could be wrong, but I think non-believers and maybe, uh, I don't know, casual believers would think uh, someone like you leads a charmed existence, you know, sort of a happy, clappy Christianity where everything is daffodils and unicorns. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm reminded mm -hmm. that's not what Jesus said at all. He said, pick up your cross and follow me and suffer. Yeah. Um, but we don't, we don't like that part. It's not much fun. Yeah. Um, I remember in my wife and I's adoption journey in the ugliest moments, mm -hmm. a mentor said, you know, our God is big enough for you to be pissed off at him. <laughs> uh, and in many ways, I think that got us through because we could we could deal with the emotion we were having of anger, yep. as you describe, yep. and doubt and frustration and all of those things. But it didn't force us to have to give up what we actually believed. Yes. We just had to believe this is going to make sense, but it doesn't today. Yes. And I think it, you know, it actually speaks to the depth and the the trust in, in the relationship with God when you are mad at him, when you are pissed at him. Like, I don't, if I was never mad at my husband, like, I wouldn't, if my husband wasn't there and I didn't have a relationship with him, I'd have no one to be mad at. But <laughs> there's times where we have disagreements and I get mad at him, but like, we resolve it, we work through it, and it actually helps our relationship grow. So it's like, if you actually think about your your faith as a relationship with God, there's a natural element of misunderstanding and and questioning and and learning to trust when things don't make sense and anger. And like, all of that is part of a normal relationship, right? So right. I don't know. It's like, it, it's it's like you said, it, it's, it's totally... Um, a gift that you can't see when you're in it until you're mm. out of it, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. You know, related, but in a somewhat different direction, you mentioned a couple of times uh, uh, seeking help from counseling. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's fabulous and it's so important, mm -hmm. but it's also one of the things that m many, many couples are so resistant to do. So for the listener that's never seen a counselor over grief or something like this, 
help them understand what that was like and why it was helpful. Yeah. Um, so the way my husband and I talk about it now is I think so often there's this idea that going to counseling either as an individual or as a couple is, you know, if you've fallen apart, you're a total mess. And, you know, it's like we're all a total mess real in reality. But, you know, if you think about it like an oil tune up on a car, you don't change your oil after the engine blows up. You change your oil to prevent it from blowing up. And so when we were kind of going through a lot of grief and hardship and, and even just misunderstanding of each other through that process, it was kind of like a preventative maintenance is the way we saw it and and it ended up being very healing and helpful because, you know, it it was very conversational. Um, but it helped us understand even some of the science. Like if you're kind of a logical person, you're like, I don't want to just go sit there and talk about my feelings. It wasn't all that it was like, yeah, she asked the story and she asked us to, you know, share our experience, but she actually helped us. Here's, she helped us go, Oh, here's what's happening. When you react that way, when something bothers you and you react that way, or when this comes up for you, this is the trauma center of your brain. And here's what's happening from a physiological standpoint and a a biological standpoint and why you're reacting that way. And it actually helped us give each other a ton more grace because he thought I was just being mean or snappy or whatever. And I thought he was just not caring or he was being harsh or cold. And so she was explaining explaining the ways that the actual science of the brain works when it's had a traumatic experience or when it's wow. had, you know, a conflict. And so we walked out of there feeling like, oh my gosh, we can understand this from a scientific perspective. And then yeah. we have tools to address those scientific pieces of it, not just the touchy feely emotions, which are just the byproduct of what's happening in your brain. Um, so that like was actually really refreshing because oh. I don't, no one ever explained it to me that way. I thought I was just going to go in there and, and tell my sob story. And she was going to like, you know, tell me to breathe deep and we were going to move on. That wasn't what it was at all. So um, if anyone's on the fence, I just want to encourage you, like, you know, I, I I would ask if you if you have an OBGYN or a midwife or somebody that you trust that's kind of in this area, if you're struggling with fertility or loss, ask them, do you know of a counselor in the area, yeah. in the state even, that I could meet with virtually who does, you know, specialize in this type of thing, fertility, family, infant loss, perinatal loss, like they will likely be able to yeah. point you in the right direction or know someone who can point you in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I would add to that in the search process, sort of appreciate at the beginning, you may have to shop around. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may get lucky and yep. find the right the right counseling professional with, with the first try. At the same time, it might take you three or four tries because it's so critical that there's a chemistry there. Mm-hmm. And you've got to find a professional that can work with you within the context of your values and your belief system. Otherwise it could be, it's going to be non-productive at best. Right. So, so be patient, but I think it's work. It's worthwhile. I think when I'm seeing couples that are struggling with fertility and recurrent loss, I can almost tell Mm -hmm. pretty quickly who is getting some of those skills uh, and who is not. Mm -hmm. Um, And it certainly makes a huge difference. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. I highly recommend it. So you went through all of the struggle. You you ended up with two children very, very close together because our God has a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, now you, I guess you would, the story is not over. Uh, what's happened since then? Because as I mentioned in the intro, you have a pretty interesting life yeah. that you've done some pretty interesting things with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, help listeners understand sort of uh, where you've gone from, I'm broken, I'll never be pregnant to, what you're doing now. Yeah. You know, it was interesting because sometimes your, your cross reveals your calling, um, fertility and miscarriages and all that is a cross to carry. It just is. And I think that needs to be validated for couples so much more, but, um, in the, in the journey, as I was doing all the fertility stuff and home studies and everything, um, I also wrote a book somewhere. I don't know where I found the time. I honestly, I'm like, I had so much time before I had two babies. Wow. Um, but now I'm like, I would never be able to do all that at the same time, but Um, I wrote a book called Embrace Your Almost. It was actually my second book. And it's about finding clarity and contentment in the in-betweens, not quites and unknowns. So whether it's pregnancy loss or fertility or something else for you that feels like, you know, I'm so close, but yet so far, or I I start making progress in this area and then it gets ripped away or it goes sideways. I have to start back at the starting line. We all know what that feels like to be kind of in this waiting period. And I wrote it from my waiting period. I didn't write it from now and then write it. I didn't write it from the other side. I wrote it where there wasn't like, it wasn't tied up in a pretty little bow. It wasn't like, and now everything's great. And you know, hold on to hope. It was really speaking to the person who's like, I don't know if this will ever work out for me, whether it's mm-hmm. ability or something else, a, a job they're hoping to get, healing from a chronic illness or something else. Because when you're in the in the pending, in the waiting, in the in the time that feels like your life's kind of on pause or loading and it's not moving forward, I think one of the hardest parts about it is not only the grief of what you hoped it would be or the losses that you've had, 
but also the uncertainty of if it'll ever change. And so I wrote from that place and I just wrote like almost like a survival manual, but from like a friend who's doing it with you. Um, (laughs) And the things I just shared the things I was doing um, to kind of make the most of that season to, you know, grow as a person, to grow as in my faith, to find, you know, what do I actually care about? What are my priorities? The clarity I had been looking for kind of came through suffering. And simultaneously, I had to kind of learn what does contentment look like, even if I Mm. love where I'm at, how can I make the most of it? Um, So that's, I wrote that book and that came out um, the month that I got pregnant with my third baby that I thought, oh, I just needed to write the book. And then, (laughs) Um, so anyway, that was one project that, you know, I still speak to that topic quite a bit, but in the, in my journey, I did a lot of just lifestyle changes, worked a lot on supporting my body holistically and I think that really benefited my pregnancy. I think it benefited me postpartum and it's ultimately just a blessing to my family now because over the last three or four years, as I made those changes, um, it now has just become a natural part of our lifestyle, you know, minimizing our toxin burden and trying to, you know, source our food a little bit better and just be a little bit more intentional to get back to God's original design in our very convenience oriented, you know, fast paced culture Hmm. and even just slower living, Sabbathing, things like that. We tried to implement rhythms for, and it's a little bit different now navigating that with two babies. So we've gotten (laughs) off course in some ways, but just having those disciplines and those, those resources that I had the time through my fertility and waiting period, um, to, to uncover. Now I not only live that lifestyle, but I love to share some of those things with women who are like, okay, I feel like I want to, you know, support my family, whether they have children already, or I want to support my body because I'm struggling with fertility or I'm afraid to struggle with fertility. How do I do that more holistically? Um, I do that through my podcast. I do that through sharing clean products. Um, and just trying to give women, you know, tools to take first steps to make just one better decision at a time for their homes and their families, whether it's their future family that they're hoping and praying for or the family that they already have. Um, so it's become a huge passion of mine just through my own experience and journey. Wow. What a terrific story. You know, I'm going to include uh, all of your uh, your sites and your links and the program notes, but how is the best way for listeners that want to learn more about you and about your journey, about your business interest, how's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. Um, I would say the easiest way is to follow me on Instagram at Jordan Lee Dooley. Um, it, it rhymes, so it's pretty easy to remember. <laughs> um, but that's kind of my hub where I share links to podcast episodes and my website and all the different resources that I provide. So that would be an easy place to find me. Excellent. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining us and for joining our listeners. Uh, I hope we can have you back someday and hear the next chapter of what I'm sure is going to be a very exciting story that something tells me it's not over yet. No, I think it's, I, I always say, I'm like, I don't, I don't necessarily, in so many ways, I feel like I'm on the other side, but at the same time, I'm like, I feel like there's God's still doing things and there might be, I, I'm like still bracing for, there might be more suffering. I don't know, you know, but like, I'm just, I'm savoring the gift that is this season and I'm very thankful for that. Wow. Well, Jordan, thanks again for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this discussion as much as I've enjoyed participating in it. Uh, I hope you heard from Jordan uh, that great message of hope, of of perseverance, um, of the ability to press through the dark times with faith that there is a bright side uh, just, just around life's corner. Do you have a story that you'd like to share with listeners as Jordan shared her story? If so, I would love to hear from you. You can reach me via email at Dr. Stroud, that's D-R-S-T-R-O-U-D, Dr. Stroud at fertilityandmidwifery.com, or you can message me directly at 260-450-8878. I'd love to hear from you. And a special thank you to our friends at Spoke Street Media, without whom this podcast would simply be impossible. You can hear an amazing collection of outstanding content at spokestreet.com. So check them out. I want to thank you again for joining us at All Things Women's Health. Please like and subscribe to the podcast. Please tell your friends about it. I'll be back soon with another episode of All Things Women's Health. Thanks again for listening. I'm Dr. Chris Stroud.